Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, where we conclude our series, A Well-Researched Christmas, today with a message entitled, Peace on Earth. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The old King James Version of the Bible translated Luke 2, verse 14 as, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, that's to say the angels visited the shepherds, according to one translation, and they announced that the birth of Jesus would signal peace on earth. And you see that everywhere. Peace on earth is put on Christmas wreaths and Christmas cards and on very festive lettering that one really finds everywhere. And from that come the stories of Christmas and the hope of peace. You know, I remember reading the story of an incident in World War I when British and German troops stopped firing at each other on Christmas Day. Indeed, they met in the middle between the trenches and shared whatever rations they had with each other. He sang Christmas carols in both languages, shared photographs of their loved ones, and even enjoyed a soccer match. The point is that this kind of peace is inspired by the Christmas spirit. And there are other stories just like this one of goodwill towards men that Christmas is supposed to produce. You know, people tend to be friendlier at Christmas time. They tend to be more generous and they contribute to food banks and they care about their fellow human beings. But in the case of that unusual account of the temporary ceasefire on Christmas Day on World War I, well, the very next day, December 26th, the guns resumed and the war was on again. Misery, savagery, and death had simply taken a one-day holiday. Christmas, and I hate to burst your bubble, really didn't inspire peace on earth at all. The Great War went on, and it was one of the bloodiest conflicts in human history, resulting in millions upon millions of human deaths. Indeed, the aftermath was so appalling, many thought it was the war to end all wars. Would that it had been true. But neither the appalling consequences of untold suffering nor the seeming promise of the angels that a Savior had been born and now peace on earth, goodwill towards men, well, nothing seems really to have resulted in that kind of a scenario. I mention this because some people have gotten the wrong idea about the announcement of the angels and have therefore assumed that the Christmas message has really failed. I've sometimes seen videos contrasting the, the message of peace on earth with the ongoing nature of warfare and conflict, as if, well, it's a nice thought, but in truth, that's not what Christmas has delivered. All things did carry on as before. But the fact is that the translators of the King James really mistranslated this passage. In fact, Jesus himself promised quite the opposite. Matthew 10, verse 34, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Indeed, Jesus promised that his presence on the earth would bring great division, great animosity. Faith in him would even result in families being divided. Jesus predicted that a person's enemies will be those of his own household. No, the angels never promised peace on earth, and Jesus predicted quite the opposite. We'll see that later in what Simeon had to say. He took Mary aside and said to her, This child is destined to produce in Israel some who will rise, and some who will stagger and fall. And his coming, he said to Mary, will be like a dagger entering into your own heart. 
You'll suffer because of him. And to be truthful, Jesus' coming has not only caused suffering to Mary, but to many others as well. No, in fact, the angels did not say, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace was not promised to all, but only to some. But, but even here, we must exercise some caution when we attempt to interpret the message of the angels. See, when the angels promised peace among those with whom he is pleased, that promise has to be understood. As we've seen, they didn't promise a peaceful life. They didn't promise an absence of conflict. As the New Testament would later explain, all of us are by nature the children of wrath. We're separated from God. We are by nature enemies of God. But Christ has come as our Savior, making peace between God and us. Our sins are taken away. We're reconciled to God through the blood of his eternal covenant. That is the kind of peace that the angels foretold. And look, if you're not interested in peace with God, well, the angels really have no good news at all. Now, they promised the favor of God and peace among those with whom the Father is pleased. But we are also called to remember that at one point in time, that is, when Christ comes the second time, he will genuinely bring wars to an end. The prophet Micah predicted that one day they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and know of war no more. Yeah, eventually, Jesus will bring universal peace. But before that day arrives, the experience of peace with God may not lead to peace with one's fellow man. Certainly for the families that were raising boys in Bethlehem, Herod's rage and his murder of the boys, well, the birth of Jesus hardly brought them peace. And that's the drama that we see played out as Luke the historian seeks to help us come to terms with the meaning of the birth of Jesus. So let's carry on in our study of Luke, that is, Luke the researcher of the birth of Jesus. I'm reading Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 35. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You know, Mary and Joseph were godly, Bible-believing, obedient parents. According to Scripture, they brought Jesus to be circumcised on the eighth day. According to Genesis 17, verse 12, every son of Israel was to be circumcised on the eighth day. 
So Mary and Joseph from the outset had already decided that Jesus would be raised in complete observance to the law of God. And then Joseph and Mary were also in compliance with Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Mary would undergo a 33-day period of time after the circumcision of her son, which were called the days of her purification. Now, once the eight days and then the 33 were completed, that is, after 40 days, Leviticus 12 demanded that she bring her son into the temple and that she bring an offering to the Lord. When a family was especially poor, which is what Mary and Joseph were, the law allowed them to bring turtle doves or pigeons, which is exactly what they did. And so they came to the temple simply because Mary, according to the law, needed to be ritually purified. But according to Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, they also came to present their son to the Lord. So firstborn sons had a special place in Israel. Because God had destroyed the firstborn in Egypt, but had spared Israel's firstborn, every firstborn after that, every firstborn child belonged to the Lord. And so according to Numbers chapter 18, the passage speaks of all flesh that first opens the womb belongs to the Lord. Human beings were to be redeemed, and this was a part of the ceremony that Joseph and Mary would have now attended. I said that what Joseph and Mary did was not unusual, it was just normal. All faithful Jewish parents would have done exactly what they did. You didn't need to give birth to the Messiah to do what they did. But this normal action sets the stage for what follows next. A man comes to them, takes the child in his hands, and says the most amazing words. So... Who is this man? You know, some have suggested that he's a priest and that he's most likely an old priest. That seems the most likely scenario because you might argue, I mean, who else would take the child in his arms if not a priest at the dedication of that child? But interestingly enough, there is no word about who he is or how old he is or even what he's doing in the temple. All we know is that he takes the baby Jesus in his arms and then, sight unseen, begins to prophesy over him. It's really an amazing moment. Hey, this is Rika Seward, and I'll be joining Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. Join us for a week of laughter, inspirational music, worship, and spiritual refreshment. This is a cruise for the entire family, and beyond the incredible entertainment and amenities that the Oasis of the Seas provides, we'll have opportunity to enjoy all the activities available in ports of call, including Labadee, Jamaica, and Cozumel. Are you looking for a winter escape? Join me, Rika Seward, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and the Laugh Again team for this incredible, fun-filled journey and return refreshed and restored, both physically and spiritually. It's all happening this coming February 3rd to 10th, and space is limited. So call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. Luke, who seems to have researched everything, tells us everything he knows about this man named Simeon. First, he tells us that he's righteous and devout. And then second, Luke tells us that this man is seeking the consolation of Israel. That's to say, he was seeking for Israel to be consoled or to be comforted. And when we hear those words, we might immediately think of the words that come from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 2. 
It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. And that's to say that the righteous in Israel knew that all of Israel's troubles, that is, her defeat at the hand of her enemies and her suffering, well, they had come about because of her sins. Israel never had peace because Israel continued to rebel against God. But Simeon was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he was waiting for God in some fashion to forgive his erring people and to console them for their suffering. Simeon, if you will, was looking for peace, both peace with God and peace on earth. And on the day when Mary and Joseph came into the temple out of their obedience to the law of God, Simeon, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, walks right up to Mary and takes her baby in his hands and begins to prophesy. And what he says first was astonishing. Staring into the baby's face, he then lifts up his eyes to the Lord and says, Ah, now I'm ready to die, for I've been waiting for this moment all my life, and now it's here. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now, how long has been waiting for that moment? We don't know. All we know is that he's watched every day for the arrival of the Messiah. And on that day, 40 days after Jesus was born, the Holy Spirit led him into the temple in a crowded room full of worshipers. And he pushed by all of them and he zeroed right in on Mary and Joseph and took the baby from Mary's startled hands and says, Now, O Lord, you can dismiss me from my post as a watcher of Israel. For my eyes have seen the morning light, your salvation. This this child is your salvation prepared for all people. And then he appropriately calls the child a light. Just like a watcher on an ancient city wall awaiting the first rays of the morning light. So this man has now seen the light of God begin to shine. And then he gets specific. The light of Jesus, he says, is going to shine in two ways. First, it will be a light for the Gentiles. He will be a revelation. Gentiles, he says, will crowd to find this boy. And then second, for Israel, he will be their glory. And that's, that's fascinating because, as you know, Israel had so much glory already. The glory of the Red Sea parting, the glory of the great God arriving on Mount Sinai and giving the Ten Commandments, the glory of the giving of all of the covenants. Aha, but says Simeon, all of that is eclipsed by the glory of this child. You know, Luke says the boy's mother and father marveled. They're, they were amazed. You know, their mouths are left hanging open. I mean, first the shepherds and their story of a, the sky filled with, with angels, and now this. But with all these things that Simeon spoke of, I, I notice his moderating tone. The great days of glory may be coming, but please understand the conflict, he says. This child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many. He means this child is going to divide the community. And people will strongly oppose him, resulting in their own ruin. And then fixing his eyes on Mary, he tells her that a a sword will pierce her heart. That is, Mary, you must know how much you will suffer because of this child. Well, peace on earth indeed. If it's God's peace, it comes at a great price. And that's it. That's all he said. But just then, when Mary and Joseph were already open-mouthed and gazing at him, one more completely surprising event. I'm reading now Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You know, Anna's story in some ways is very similar to that of Simeon. We don't know much about her, but we know at least three things. First, we know that she's been a widow most of her life. She's 84, at least that's how our text reads it, and after a short marriage, her husband dies, and from that moment on, her life changes. Now, Luke doesn't tell us if she ever had children or if she had grandchildren. You know, many people simply assume that she didn't because the fact that she doesn't live with her children, she lives in the temple. But, of course, we don't know any of that except that she's old and that she's been in the role of a widow most of her life. Second, we know that she's from the tribe of Asher. Now, that seems surprising given that many of us think that Asher was one of the lost tribes of Israel, one of the ten tribes that were dispersed long years before. And that tells me that Anna knows her genealogy and that there were members of the tribe of Asher right there among the Israelites during the days of Jesus. But third, Anna never left the temple. That means she had quarters in the temple, some kind of a room, perhaps. Or it might mean that every single day she journeyed to the temple and she spent her time there both in prayer and in prophesying. But who is she prophesying to and about what? Well, we're not told. And and that's all we know. We don't know any of the details of what she prophesied or how she used her time in worship. Did people regularly seek her for prayer and counsel? I suspect that's exactly what happened, but I must confess we don't know. Indeed, that's fascinating. We don't even know what she said about Jesus. She said something about him to all who were listening, and it must have been significant, but Luke doesn't record it. Apparently, her words caused her to deeply thank God. Anna is thanking God for this child, and then she speaks, as did Simeon, of God's redemption, and in this case, for the city of Jerusalem. And with that, the story of the announcements of Jesus' birth ends. Matthew records the coming of the Magi. He records Herod's insane jealousy. He records Herod's murder, and then Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt and seeking protection there. But but Luke records none of that. He simply says in verse 39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. I mean, did you hear that? Luke, the great researcher, says nothing about the time when the family became refugees in Egypt. He simply mentions that eventually they all made it back to Nazareth. And then he adds verse 40, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. He records no more except for, I guess, one incident when the child was 12. And then the story really takes off when John the Baptist begins to preach in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. That's the man who succeeded Augustus Caesar to the throne. That man who, in effect, was the second Roman emperor. And by that time, more than 30 years had passed. And that's to say, Augustus built up his empire, and then he died, and his empire passed to new hands, a man who had been one of the greatest of all of the Roman generals. And while he reigned, he expanded Roman's frontier, and the power of Rome showed no signs of waning. In Israel, life returned as it had been. Herod the Great was to die very shortly after he had murdered the children in Bethlehem. The Sadducees continued to corrupt the priesthood in the temple, and the common people lived and died, some hoping in God and I guess some not. 
But unbeknown to the world, God had stepped into the human race and he was making a way for peace with God to be found. In essence, that is the story of Christmas. From the eyes of the natural world, nothing had changed. All things went on as they had before. But of course, everything had changed and soon the calendar of the world would be changed to mark this singular event. That's how it is every Christmas. Merchants are still selling their wares and people are still shopping. Lights are still being put on houses and people wish each other Merry Christmas and I guess the politically correct ones wish each other a happy holiday and all things just carry on. Life goes on as it always has been. Except for this. When Luke carefully researched the event of the birth of Jesus, he found unmistakable evidence that God had really come into this world, that God was clothed in human flesh and dwelt among us, and that he had come to bring peace, peace with God. Indeed, the great tidings, the greatest tidings ever told, were the words, to us is born this day a Savior who is the Messiah, who is God come to live among us. Yes, indeed, a well-researched Christmas should leave us breathless with wonder because everything has changed. God is among us and he has not destroyed us, but he has offered us peace. Yes, indeed, what an amazing thing it is. We have been visited by the great God of glory. John, thanks so much for your message today. Uh, Just a quick question, the whole idea of peace on earth. You know, we would all pray and all desire that there would be peace on earth, but help us understand what that really means in our context. Yeah, I mean, peace, um, you know, the world, oh my, this this sin-worn world is not a world of peace. And sometimes, you know, we look at Christmas as, you know, how could we possibly, you know, put these two things together? And yet, you know, the biggest need that we have is peace with God. That's where our issue is. Of course, when Christ comes again, there will be peace on earth. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron and he will call them to submit to him. But in the meantime, he makes this gracious offer to us and says, would you like the warfare between yourself and God to end? This is a greater issue, and we need to grasp that. This is a greater issue than nations fighting against each other, even though that's a horrible cataclysm, and yet this, peace with God, is our central human issue. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again for Christmas week next week, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi friends, Dr. John Newfeld, Bible teacher for Back to the Bible Canada. You know, a little time passes by that I'm not humbled by the impact Bible teaching has on the lives of people. Stories of lives changed, liberated, and discovery of new hope in Christ. We just received this note. It said, I came across Back to the Bible by accident in my desperation to find food for my spirit. Since, my spiritual walk has never been the same. The teaching has opened up scripture in a way I've longed for years but until now never experienced. This is the power of faithfully teaching the truth of the Bible. December is a critical time of the year for Back to the Bible Canada and all of its ministries, and therefore could I ask you to join us in a special partnership this month to achieve a ministry goal of raising $427,000 by December 31st. Your gift plays a critical role in sharing the light of Christ to a world desperate to hear. 
Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And may the light of Christ fill you to overflowing this Christmas season.